It was about 15 months long. Uh, in my life, all of 2017, the start of 2018, I had been grumpy, short-fused, short with my wife, and uh, more arrogant, know-it-all than usual. Most of you probably didn't notice it. Uh, I know that uh, most of the pastoral team and the office team noticed it, and my wife sure noticed it. Uh, we'd go for walks, like we normally do, uh, talk about projects I was working on, things related to church, meetings I had been in, and any time she'd ask me a question that came anywhere near disagreeing with me, uh, pushback, uh, why do you think like that? I reacted negatively. I described uh, church situations, challenges, as though I knew the right path and solution, and why wasn't everyone just lining up and agreeing with me? Christy asked repeatedly over those 15 months, are you being faithful to what God's called you to do? Or are you trying to get everyone to agree with you and approve of you? Are you trying to be faithful to what God is calling you to do? Or are you trying to get everyone to agree with you and approve of you? My answer, of course, was, well, of course, I'm just trying to be faithful. But she was right. I had lost my joy, and she knew it before I was willing to admit it. What had happened in my heart? That's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, our series is Idols of the Heart. So if you're visiting, this is week four out of five. We've been talking about idols of the heart and looking at the Bible to see what it says about the things that we put in the place of God and what it does to our souls when there is an idol of the heart. And there is good news at the end of it. Because when we learn to identify our idols and tear them down and get back to giving worship to the God who deserves it, there is great victory over sin. There is great joy once those idols are identified and torn down. So, uh, we're at week four. There have been some great questions you've been asking. So there's been some good pushback. There have been discussions. Good questions have been asked. I love that this church family uh, wants to discuss and wrestle and connect the dots. So some of those good questions I want to talk about for a minute this morning. Uh, one question has been, where's the line between it's sin and it's an idol? Good question. Think pattern. Think pattern. So if there is a sin and you confess it, it's infrequent, you receive God's forgiveness and move on. Great. Isolated incident. But think pattern. If it's the kind of thing that is a loop, you're stuck in the cycle, so you're anxious, then you get convicted about being anxious and not trusting God, and so you confess it, and you do fine for a while, and then you get right back into being anxious again, or the, the anxiety, maybe the panic attack, it comes back. Then you should question if there's something that has taken the place of God in your heart. So think pattern, cycle, stuck in a loop. We've said in any persistent sin struggle, it's over and over and over. You'll find an issue of idolatry. Something or someone has become more important than God. 
Until that idol is identified and torn down, you're going to be stuck. The sin is going to be difficult to resist and overcome. Another good question. What's the big deal? It's all covered by God's grace anyways. Why are we making a big deal about idols of the heart? Great question. Uh, We're making a deal out of it because as a church family, one of our values is we want people, everyone, to find fullness, forgiveness, and freedom in Jesus. There's no freedom out of that loop. There's no fullness and forgiveness out of that loop until we deal with idols of the heart. Now, what's the big deal? Like Pastor Kip said last week, it starts, a nice little plant in the garden, looks cute. How dangerous could it be? But it grows from there. Why make a big deal out of it? Uh, The Ten Commandments do. The first two. You'll have no other God beside me. Don't make any idols. This has been a struggle from the beginning. Idols of the heart. It's actually a comfort to me to know that for 500 years, at least, people have wrestled with this. Martin Luther wrote about it 500 years ago. You only break one of the other eight commandments if you've first broken number one or number two. Idolatry is a big deal. I've seen it in the folks that I talk with uh, when uh, they're struggling and I'm trying to help almost always. Yes, there's a struggle, but almost always there's something else fueling it. There is an issue that's gone on in the heart. I turn a good thing into a God thing when it captures my heart, mind, and affections more than God. So we've used the definition during these weeks. An idol is anything or anyone that captures our heart and mind's affections more than God. Uh, Great question. Another good one has been, uh, what do you mean by the sin beneath the sin? Idolatry is typically the sin beneath the sin. So you and I can confess and receive a sin or an attitude, receive God's forgiveness. But if we haven't dealt with the idol that's fueling the sin, that's just going to pop up in another destructive way. So have you ever played the game Whack-A-Mole? Arcade game thing, you, you whack it down and it pops back up another spot and you have to hit it here and hit it here. That's what goes on with idols of the heart. So take uh, worry, anxiety. Good, I confess the worry. But if I haven't dealt with the idol of control that's fueling the worry in the first place, uh, it's just that idol of control is just going to pop up in another spot. Sin beneath the sin. Uh, Another question was uh, Keller's list, first week uh, of the series. We had the list of how to identify my personal idols, uh, a set of questions. And uh, Tim Keller sometimes can be hard to understand, and he, he writes deeply. Uh, some have said, boy, that was hard. How do I identify my idols? So in the bulletin this week, there's another list. This is uh, getting at the same thing, identifying my personal idols But this week, this is Brad Bigney's list. And he writes differently, words it differently, gets at the same thing, but maybe this will be more helpful to you. Uh, Take a look at that insert in the bulletin to identify your idols. I like the questions that Kip gave us last week. Uh, We'll put them back up on the screen here. He asked these three. These will help identify your idols of the heart. 
What do you see me running to instead of God? Where do you see a demanding spirit in me? Where do you see me wanting something so badly that I'm willing to sin to get it? These are great questions to ask a prayer partner, an accountability partner, a spouse, uh, someone that is going to be honest enough to see you say, well, you really want me to answer? To help you identify. Identifying the idols we've said, look for over-the-top emotions Boy, way more anger than the situation deserved. Uh, look for a persistent pattern, that loop, uh, where, where you're stuck in the loop. That's going to point you to an idol of the heart. Look for the substitutes that we turn to in order to have our souls satisfied. It's how we identify them. Now, maybe uh, you've got other good questions, and I haven't answered them yet. So uh, today, what we're going to do after the service, you want to come down front, we're going to have a group discussion, you want to ask a question that you've had over these four weeks, something that hasn't been answered, something you've been wrestling with, good, let's talk about it together uh, right after the service. We've got two more weeks, this week and next week. Our goal is to think biblically about two common idols, ones that we think a lot of us probably wrestle with. Uh, Next week, we're going to talk about the idol of work and success. Is work a good thing? Yeah. Uh, Work's a good thing. But when it captures our heart and mind's affections and attention more than God, it can be an idol. That's next week. This week, we're going to talk about another common one. Uh, See if you can get the thread. What do these three situations have in common? First, I was part of the Instagram string. They never should have posted that picture of her, and now everyone's trashing her. I should post something and try to stop it. They're just so cruel. But, but if I post something, I speak up in her defense, what, what are they going to post about me? Another one. It's 360 evaluation time at work. Uh, every time this rolls around, it gets me tied up in knots inside. Uh, last time, the boss gave me three things that were positives and two negatives, and I couldn't get those two negatives out of my head. I, I couldn't sleep for three nights. Or this one. I know the restructuring at work has him afraid. I, I've overheard some of the conversations him and his wife are having. It sounds like they're struggling. I would like to talk to him about what God's brought us through, but I don't know how he'd react. I'm sure he needs Jesus, but if I bring God into the conversation, what, what's he going to think of me? They said at church, invite someone to something life-giving this Christmas season, but if I invite him, what, will he accept it? What, what if he reacts negatively? What do those three have in common? Concern about human reaction. What do they think of me? What will they think of me? When I find my identity and my security in what other people do to affirm me, what they do to define me, I'm struggling with the idol of approval. The idol of approval. And it's one of mine. Told you that week one. Uh, The Bible calls it uh, the fear of man. Culture calls it some other things. Uh, People pleaser. Any other people pleasers? Um, Peer pressure. 
codependency. Our culture's got several labels for it. The scriptures refer to it as fear of man. Fear of man is when people become bigger than God. So where do we see it in the scriptures? Where is it in the Bible? It starts early. Um, you could say that the reason Adam stood by passively while Eve was being tempted was fear of Eve's response. First time that we know it's definitely uh, Deuteronomy chapter 1. God's just brought the people of Israel out of Egypt. They've had the miracles of uh, getting out of Egypt through the Exodus. They come, they're, they're poised to go in and take the land that God has promised to them. And they send 10 spies into the land. Deuteronomy 1 tells us a story. They come back, two of them say, yep, God promised, good, let's go. Eight of them say, there's giants in the land. We look like grasshoppers compared to them. We, we can't go there. Fear of man. People bigger than God. Most of the time when fear of man appears in the scriptures, it's set up as this contrast between uh, you going to trust and fear God or are you going to trust and fear what man says? The ten spies, two of them said, God promised, let's go. Eight said, fear of man. Can't go there. Uh, another example, Saul, first king of Israel, 1 Samuel 15. He's got specific, explicit instructions from the prophet. Here's what you're to do before uh, the battle. He disobeys the instructions. He comes up with plan B. I got a better idea than God does. And the prophet gets there and says, why did you disobey? And his answer is, you didn't come and I was afraid of the people. Fear of man. People are bigger than God. Um, another Bible example, where we're going to spend our time today is Peter. So would you open up your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians 2, the page number's on the screen if you need it for the Bible in front of you. Galatians chapter 2, we're going to be in the middle of the chapter. Peter is probably the most vivid illustration of fear of man, at least in the New Testament, fear of man. And we're going to think through five different scenes in Peter's life. Scene one, Peter has walked with Jesus for three years of his ministry. But when it comes down to the end and we're approaching Jesus going to the cross, the night that Jesus is arrested, Peter's in the courtyard of the high priest. He's out there warming himself by the fire and a servant girl walks up, slave girl, and says, you were one of his followers. Remember what he said? Not me. Fear of man. What's going to happen if I admit it and there's temple guards right over there and I've seen what they're doing to Jesus and what's going to happen to me? Peter's controlled by the opinions, the possible consequences. If he admits to being a follower of Jesus, what's going to happen? Scene two. Uh, he denies Jesus three times that night, is heartbroken over it when the rooster crows. Scene two is a good one. Jesus forgives. He's restored to ministry. John chapter 21. Uh, Post-resurrection, 
Jesus is with the disciples and he speaks specifically to Peter and he three times over says, Peter, do you love me more than these? These fellow fishermen, these nets, these everything else about your life, do you love me more than these? He says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus says, okay, then tend my sheep, feed my flock. Turning point for Peter. Uh, we know that because we, we see Peter shortly thereafter. Uh, Peter and John are the ones who are going around Jerusalem announcing uh, Jesus is the Son of God. The Jewish authorities killed him, but he was ri- is risen from the dead. He's the Messiah we were looking forward to. And the Jewish authorities do not like it one bit. They haul Peter and John in, arrest them, say, stop talking about Jesus. You're blaming us for his death. You're making us look bad. You stop. Remember what Peter says? Acts chapter 4, he says, you guys decide. Better for us to obey man or God? Fear of man or fear of God? Scene two, we know he's restored. Scene three, we know that God taught him in a very special, specific way a lesson about who's in and who's out. Who's God willing to work with? Whose lives is he interested in? Peter, good Jew, had been used to God's people are the Jews. Everybody else is a Gentile. They're out, we're in. Scene three for Peter is very, very specific instruction and lesson from God. Acts chapter 10, Peter has a vision. Then he's told uh, the visitors come from Cornelius' house and say, "Uh, Peter, for some reason, we're supposed to ask you to come uh, back to our, our leader's home and you're to tell us about your message. So he goes, and Cornelius is the first non-Jew, first Gentile, who is saved. Peter knows firsthand God's told him not to consider Gentiles unclean. God works in the lives of Gentiles too. Peter's overcome his fear of the enemy, fear of the unknown, but not fear of his friends. He's still got a battle with fear of man. It's in Galatians chapter 2. Scene 4 for Peter. He's learned his lesson, right? Not yet. At least not completely. Peter has left the Jewish community in Jerusalem. He's gone up to Antioch to visit the believers there. We don't know why he went. Text doesn't tell us. Um, Probably, I think, to go and see. Paul had told uh, him and the others in Jerusalem all about what was going on as God was working in the lives of the Gentiles. I think Peter went to check it out for himself and to see what God was doing. And when he's there, he finds a church family that is Jews and Gentiles all together. Their differences before have been eliminated because of common need for a savior. Level ground at the foot of the cross. He finds a church family of Jew and Gentile are all together, including eating together, which a good Jewish follower of Jesus would never have done because there are too many dietary laws in the Old Testament and the the rules about who you eat with and how you eat and what you eat. You're going to sit down with these former pig-eating pagans 
But Peter goes and he sees God's work in the Gentiles and he sees that church family and he enters right in. And verse 12 tells us, before certain men came from James, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. The used to eat means it was more than once. He just joined in with the rest of the life in the church family and he was with them. But when these certain men arrived, Peter began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid. Afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. When certain men came from James, James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So these people had come from Jerusalem up to Antioch. These were some of Peter's buddies, Jewish buddies in the church in Jerusalem. They had come up because they wanted to, their goal was, great, we're glad you Gentiles are coming to know Jesus, but you got to be more Jewish like us. Come on. They, they called them the circumcision group. Come on, you, good, you've trusted Jesus, but now get circumcised, be like the rest of us. Even though they had already, the leaders in Jerusalem had already made the decision, no, that isn't required. When these people come from James, some of these friends that Peter knows, Peter starts backing away, gradually detaches himself from the Gentiles that he's been eating with. These brothers and sisters he had been eating with, not anymore. The same Peter who denied Jesus for fear of a servant girl now denies what he knows is right for fear of these Jewish friends in the circumcision group. In fact, verse 13, it's not only impacting Peter, but his drift takes others with him. Verse 13, the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. And we learn more about Barnabas later in Acts. What did Paul do about it? Well, verse 11 says, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Paul got, on, got in Peter's face. I would love to have seen what that looked like and what that interaction was. We, we love being able to read about both these men. In this case, Paul has to go to Peter and say, you're wrong. What he said to him is in verse 14, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? He's saying, Peter, you know that we're made right with, and the chapter goes on in the next paragraph. The way we are made new, the new life that we have is because of faith in Christ, not because of following the law. The law didn't make us new people. The law didn't secure our eternity. It's what Jesus did on the cross that makes us right with God, our faith and trust in that. Why are you... You're putting one foot on each horse and trying to ride both of them. It doesn't work. What are you thinking? Did Peter learn his lesson this time? I say this time because a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Tim said to us, remember, idols of the heart, we wish it was once and done. Oh, fear of man is a problem. Okay, I confess it, done. No, it, 
we've got to continue to guard our hearts he said a couple of weeks ago, because it's going to pop back up. This is a lifelong battle. This isn't one and done. So what about Peter? Did he learn his lesson this time? Well, scene five for Peter is 1 Peter chapter 3. He, of course, has an amazing ministry, and when he, a few years later, writes the letter 1 Peter, he's writing to believers who are struggling. They're being persecuted. And he writes to them, 1 Peter chapter 3, Verses 13 and 14. Don't fear what they fear. Don't fear what they fear. But in your heart, set apart Christ Jesus as Lord. He's the one you want to focus on. Don't fear their reaction, their opinion, what they might want to do to you. This fear of man is the struggle for most of us in sharing our faith what might be the consequences if if I share, if I bring God into the conversation, if I share my story uh, of faith what, what happens if they disapprove what happens if they're offended what happens if they don't want to hear it and so we don't talk even though we know wait, uh, they need to hear this could make all the difference in their lives, fear of man. Most clear, uh, we've been talking about where does it appear in the scriptures? The spies, King Saul, Peter. Proverbs 29, 25 is the most obvious. Verses on the screen. Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Scripture is always setting up the contrast between who am I going to trust and fear? Either the Lord or man. And when I choose man, it becomes a trap a snare that will go to the point of controlling your life. When the opinions and attitudes of others put pressure on you, even get to the point of hindering you from speaking what is right, doing what is right, you know that something has happened. It's the snare of the fear of man. So I hope you're asking me, do I have a problem with this? Do I have a problem with the fear of man? Well, on the back of your sermon outline are 14 questions. These are from Ed Welch. And he takes a number of things, things we'll refer to in our culture, peer pressure, uh, embarrassment, uh, feeling empty, self-esteem, and puts them in questions. Maybe this will help you. I think it will. Helps me. Maybe it'll help you identify, oh, where am I dealing with fear of man? When you get under the hood, when you, uh, when you know something's broken, you lift the hood, you, you work and try and figure out what is going on here. When, when you're dealing with sin struggles like stress, anxiety, panic, eating disorders, deep resentment in the workplace, excessive people-pleasing, bitterness at others because they said something that hurt you and it doesn't matter how long ago it was. When you, you start to, to wrestle with that and look at it, you'll find the worship of what others think of you, the idol of approval, fear of man, 
the idol of approval, seeing people as bigger than God. When the opinions, the approval, the affirmation of others become more important than what God has said about who I am, I've made people bigger than God. And that's the idol of approval. Living for others' approval, letting others' opinions of you define you, consumed by what others think about you. It's just living on a substitute. One person said, people are our idol of choice. So you're fairly sure God loves you, but you need something from someone else. You need their love or approval or affirmation. One person said, uh, whatever you've decided you need to have, and when you've decided where that's going to come from, that is the person you're going to fear. So if you are looking to man for approval, affirmation, definition, that's who I'm going to fear. If I'm looking to God for definition, affirmation, approval, that's who I'm going to fear. So I've had to ask the me question. I told you in week one, this is one of my idols of the heart. I want people to like me. My love language is words of affirmation. Is that a bad thing? Pretty innocuous. It's like Pastor Kip's uh, gourd plant that he talked about last week. Starts pretty innocent. It's been a part of my personality as long as I can remember. I thought back on this, visited my elementary school uh, a few months back and, and remembered I would get there early and sit on the steps leading into the school because I was waiting for the first girl I ever had a crush on to come to school. And I was just hoping she would say hi or smile at me or notice me. I was way too shy to ever say anything to her, but I was going to be right in the path where she was coming, looking for affirmation. It's been there as long as I can remember. Uh, I've wondered if its roots have something to do with never felt completely affirmed or approved of by my dad, so I started looking other places for it. Maybe that's some part of it. Maybe it's just I was a normal uh, late elementary, middle school boy trying to figure out where do I fit? Do I have any friends? Am I okay? Is the desire to be liked, affirmed, approved of a bad thing? I'm going to say no. But when we turn a good thing into a God thing, that's when our hearts drift back into idolatry. One person said, idols will hijack a legitimate desire. I'd like people to like me. Legit. Idols will hijack that desire and turn it into a demand. Demand is the closing of my fist around a desire. It goes from, that would be nice, I'd like that, to, I will have that, to, I must have that, to, I deserve this, and why aren't you giving it to me? That desire to be liked, if I don't guard my heart, it drifts off into being the idol of approval. Because I turn a good thing into a God thing when it captures my heart, mind, and affections more than God. So I battle with the idol of approval. I can sing the song, I am who you say I am, God, and I've got everything right on 
the difference Jesus has made in my life. I know he's changed my life. I know when I heard the gospel and I responded to it and I knew Jesus died for my sins and I'm going to choose to follow him. I know he's changed my life. I know he's still working on changing my life. I know that I'm part of his family. And, and that's better than anything else. I know that there's no, I, I know in my head that there's no affirmation or approval that any human can give me. You, my wife, that can match up with the affirmation and approval that come from relationship with Jesus and being forgiven by him. I know that. But then why do I drift off into considering human approval? So important, so necessary, so life-giving. Why? Because my heart settles for a substitute. So about eight months ago, that was the end of that 15-month period I described when I'd been grumpy, short-fused, more arrogant than usual. About eight months ago, saw my idol of approval like I hadn't seen it before. Uh, Through those months, told you, Christy kept asking me, uh, are you being faithful to what God's called you to do or are you trying to get everyone to approve of you and agree with you? Uh, Well, I'm just trying to be faithful. But I had lost my joy and she knew it before I did. Instead of finding approval in God, I was focused on what people around me thought, approved of, affirmed. And when they didn't, uh uh-oh, it had me in a mood. And these people that uh, disagreed, didn't affirm like I thought they should, people I love and value, I knew that it wasn't wrong to be liked, affirmed, approved of. But when it leads to loss of joy, anger, and arrogance, there's a problem. So, uh, was my anger and being short-fused, was that sin? Yep. And many times over the 15 months, I confess it. I'm sorry, God, you don't want me to be like that. I don't want to be like that. Uh, Is the arrogance ugly and sinful? And many times I said, I don't want to be like that. But I hadn't gotten to the sin beneath the sin. I was stuck in the loop. And the sin beneath the sin was my chasing of my idol of approval. God used a song one night at a seminar. song was all about God's faithfulness. He'd worked faithfully in the past. He'd worked faithfully again. It had words in it about joy. And it was like things clicked. I've lost my joy. I saw the sin beneath the sin. I went back to the room that night and told Christy, I'm going to get my joy back. She just looked at me. I said, I imagine I haven't been much fun to live with over the past 15 months. She just looked at me. So, uh, maybe you, like me, deal with the idol of approval. How do we tear it down? What's it mean to dethrone the idol of approval. So I want to take the last few minutes and we're going to talk about, uh, here's five pieces of advice about how to go about tearing that one down. Um, And these have been helpful to me. One, reorient. It's not magic, it's a choice. Reorient, refocus. What do I mean? Uh, Christy asked me the next day after we had that talk, she said, well, how do you think your heart got in this spot? What got you internally there? 
As the best I understand it, two things have been happening. One, I've underestimated the cumulative impact of, well, there's a question here, and there's a situation here, and there's a struggle here, and there's a counseling situation here, and well, then I'm trying to deal with this, and well, what should I do about this? And those collectively, cumulatively, add them up, they were doing damage to my soul, and I didn't see it. It was like frog in a kettle, little by little, by little, by little, by little, but negative. The other thing that had happened was I had made what others thought of the way I was handling all of this stuff more important to me than what God thought of me. And so I had to flip things. I had to flip where my focus was. So uh, of the five, number one piece of advice, uh, reorient, flip things. So I, I knew in my head, I belong to Jesus. I get to serve Jesus in an amazing church. What he thinks of me is the most important but I'd let all the rest of the challenges of things, I want to be faithful, I want to work hard, the church, uh, I want to serve the church well, I, I want to help people well. I let all those things, I let the two get flipped. How I'm handling this and how people feel about how I'm handling this, this is more important than what God says. So number one, reorient. Those have to be flipped. And it's not once and then. I knew I lost my joint. I said, uh, I've told myself many days since then, when these things all start to get my focus, yep, I want to be faithful in them, but I'm not going to lose my joy. And my joy is rooted in what he has said about me. I have to value God and what he thinks of me, what he's done to define me, his approval of me, more than what people think of me and how they affirm me. God must be big. People must be small. One person says it this way. We need to, God's, uh, God's task for us is to need people less and love them more. I like that. Need them less and love them more. Uh, second, fear of man must be replaced with the fear of God. You are not going to get rid, you and I, are not going to get rid of the fear of disapproval. Why? It's a whole other talk, a whole other discussion. Uh, it's intrigued me. Because we're created beings, we don't find our worth in ourselves. So every one of us knows uh, what defines me, my worth, what makes me valuable, isn't me has to come from somewhere else. God designed us for that to come from him. But when we don't look to him for it, now I've got to look to somebody else. Say, oh, you affirm me, define me, give value to me. And so uh, this author says, we aren't going to get rid of our fear of disapproval. What we have to do is redirect it. We've, we have to replace fear of man with fear of God. Remember the contrast in Scripture is always... Trust and fear God or trust and fear man? Oops, when I get here, I can't get rid of, can't go, oh, I'm happy with disapproval. That's fine. At least I haven't gotten there yet. But I have to say, you know what? Fearing his disapproval is a whole lot more important to me than man's disapproval. Third, hope this is helpful. Establish a wartime mentality. I'm, I'm suspicious of my own heart. I expect conflict and struggle because I know my heart left to itself 
It's going to drift off into the idols. Here's how Brad Bigney says it. Keep in mind that you face an enemy who is skilled at all sorts of deceptive tactics. Idols hide and camouflage themselves. They rarely come out into the open. Say, hi, I'm the idol of approval. No, they're going to pop out in a spot where you, where you don't expect them. And if you don't have a wartime mentality, if you haven't set yourself to be, uh, I'm sus- I know where my heart will drift. I'm going to guard my heart and expect that and reorient. He says, uh, the other thing about idols is they don't stay dead. You stab them again and again and you drag their nasty carcasses around to make sure they're good and dead. But when you least expect it at the most inopportune moment in your life, that idol you thought you dealt with will jump out from some corner in your heart and scare the fool out of you, getting your sinful adrenaline all ramped up again. That's what idols do. Wartime wartime mentality is, I know they're there, I know they're going to pop back out, and I'm not going to let them control my heart. Fourth, uh, I loved what Kip said last week, on uh, starve your idols. He said, uh, what we need to do is pray to God to identify identify our idols, then confess them. I don't want that. I want to turn back away from the substitute to the real thing, to worship of God. Then we need to starve our idols, and we need to put people around us who will hold the mirror up to our heart and are willing to answer those three questions we put up earlier and say, something's going on in your heart, and you've replaced God with something. Or someone. I love the point of the starve your idols. Don't feed the monster. So, you may not have noticed, you will from now on because I'll explain it to you. When it's my Sunday, my turn to get to speak, um, most of the time after message, I am here because I'm either going over here to pray with folks that would like to pray. That's true this morning. In a few minutes, you can come pray. Uh, me and others will be there to pray with you. Uh, I'm either there or I'm here or in the courtyard because I'm saying good morning and greeting people and, and love being with the church family. But when it's my morning to speak, what do you say to me when you come and say hello to me? You feed the monster. <laughs> is what you do. Oh, thank you for the message. I really needed to hear that today. Uh, God, God you, is using that in my heart Thank you so much. So you know what I'll do to starve the idol? Thank you, by the way. You're sincere. It's great. Uh, Number one, if I'm here or out there, I will deflect. You'll notice I always say something about putting the focus on. I hope God will use it. He's taught me a bunch. Uh, I want him to use it in the church family. I want to focus on him, not on, yeah, it was a good message, huh? Yeah, I worked really hard on that one. I know the monster. I'm not going to feed it. Uh, the times I'm not here deflecting, I disappear. I like to go over to the children's check-in area and talk to kids and parents so I don't have to talk about the message. I don't have to listen to the comments. That can... So it, it's one of my things that helps starve the idol. So for you, what will help you starve the idol? It worked really well, first hour, first service. I had two people come up to me afterwards and say it was a rotten message. (laughs) Oh, I love it. 
Fifth thing, uh, learn to work backward from the chaos in your life to identifying the idolatrous desire. Now, this isn't just the idol of approval. This works with anything. And it's part of the, I've got my antenna up for when there is chaos. So for me, when I'm talking about what it was like for those 15 months, I should have picked up quicker on short fuse, arrogance, I hate pushback. Uh, when I'm questioned about something, what is good? Because I felt the bristling in my spirit. Well, the idea is I take that chaos. When you know that's there, now work backwards. Wait a minute. That tells me something is going on in my heart that is idolatrous, replacing God. And that, once I identify it, then I can say, no, I refuse the substitute. Yeah, is there sin in the chaos? Yep. But I've got to deal with turning back to the one who has defined me, has affirmed me, has approved of me in Jesus to be able to then say, it's okay if they disagree. Okay if they disapprove. Okay if they think I handled it poorly. Because I've got what I need in Jesus. So I think for any idol, that whole thing of take the chaos, the confusion, and work backward and, and dig at the root. So what is it for you? I hope, uh, we're at week four, I hope you've identified a couple of them that are yours. And I hope one of the five steps or pieces of advice will be helpful to you. Let's fight together. And it's time for us to respond. Would you bow with me? We've said we've only worshipped when we've responded to God. So we've thought about Peter, Saul. We've looked at the situation in, in Galatians 2. And we know that we uh, fall into the same trap, many of us. Let's end this morning with a moment of being able to turn back and reorient. Would you make the choice to flip your focus from all the other stuff, the other opinions, the other affirmations, and turn your focus back to what God has said, what he has done in Jesus, what he's done to define and approve and affirm. Would you talk to him for a moment now? Father, my prayer is that today is a day of uh, taking another step toward freedom and fullness and forgiveness in you and that each of us will be able to walk from this place into the relationships that you've called us into, the, the workplaces, the classrooms, the spots where you've planted us, uh, where you're taking us as we leave this building uh, the rest of this day and then back into uh, our rest of the week world tomorrow. And we'd walk there as people belonging to you, letting you define and affirm who we are. Would you grant uh, another step of freedom and fullness to each one of us for the purpose of our being able to represent you well and live in the joy of what you have done for us. And we need your help to do that. So we pray for it in the name of Jesus. Amen.